I am George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and welcome to the, the week-long, I don't want to call it a celebration, but it's the week-long anniversary of the two years since I started That UFO Podcast. Um, we started the week with the interview with Lou Elizondo, which you will have heard by now, and we're finishing off the week with uh, an interview about remote viewing, which is one of the initial subjects I put in the description of the podcast when I first started it long before I've done any interviews on remote viewing. Since then, I've spoken to several remote viewers, and I'm very excited to welcome Daz Smith, who is an artist and graphic designer, an author, an active remote viewer who continuously works with the top people in the field on both public and private remote viewing projects. He also runs several large information websites on the subject of remote viewing, and he edits and publishes Eight Martinis, which is a print and online magazine dealing with the subject of remote viewing. That's just half the bio as well. So the rest of it, I'll let you check out yourselves online or I would be here all day. Um, Daz, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Yeah. And it's great to be here. Uh, as, as I may have mentioned, I, I listen to the podcast quite often. So yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I know Dan, uh, regular co-host, a big fan of yours as well. So he was looking forward to speaking to you. As we record this, he is on a live with uh, Vinny from Disclosure Team as well. So Dan yeah. sends his regards over. Very Thank popular you. guest as I got a ton of listener questions. I've tried to build as many of them into the interview as possible. We've okay. then got the listener questions section as well. We'll get through what we can. But I think I've got to start at the beginning. Uh, and we've spoken to a few remote viewers, like I've said, and people can go and check those interviews out in the archive archives it's always a popular discussion uh i want to ask you in your own words what is remote viewing oh well yeah uh the simple answer for that is it's when a uh, an intuitive uses their intuitive ability to see outside local space so they're allowed you know they essentially move their consciousness away from themselves to a remote location uh, and they can see targets uh which consist of uh, events, locations, life forms, objects, structures, anywhere in time and space. So you can look at not only now, but future and in past as well, yeah? We can, yes. And the past targets are very accurate. Uh, now targets are very accurate. But we do lose accuracy on looking at future targets. I'm running at probably around about 65% accuracy on looking at targets in the future at the moment. Now, I know there's a listener question, at least on future targets and predictions coming up, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. I okay. want to know, Daz, how did remote viewing first become a part of your life? I'm right in saying you began training as such at a very young age, about 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I trained in what I call classical or psychic techniques from 10 years old, and that was that was techniques like a normal clairvoyance, mediumship, channeling, using all the divination methods, uh, tarot cards, crystal balls, sand reading, tea levering. So pretty much anything I could get my hands on back then. 
And then in 90, uh, I was very much into, uh, and I always have been into UFO research as well. And I was a local UFO researcher here in the UK uh, from around about the 1989 period when, when crop circles came about, you know, we had a big explosion in the UK here. And I started getting in heavily into uh, UFO research back then, uh, collecting books and videos. And I went to a UFO conference in Leeds, uh, which was run by Quest International. And uh, they had a person on stage who played an audio tape. And it was a taped conversation with someone who claimed he was in or part of Majestic 12. And he was a remote viewer. And, you know, in this audio tape that he played live on, on stage, uh, this remote viewer was talking about how the, he was a psychic. and He was trained by the CIA and the, Amer the American military to essentially spy on the Russians and to go anywhere in time and space. And he tracked UFOs to their point of origin and construction using this. So in the moment I heard that, being a semi-trained psychic anyway, I was I was hooked and I've been uh, yeah, I've been exploring this this ever since in, in the twenty-five years since. Now, ten years old is quite a, a young age to start anything as, as serious as what you've done. What kind of sparked that interest at such a young a young time of your life? I was yeah, unlike most of the people out there that are interested in remote viewing, I was quite lucky in that I was brought up in a household where my mother was a, uh, she she ran the local spiritualist church. So we, you know, we had a library of books and it had all the usual ones, you know, like the encyclopedias and all that kind of stuff in there. But the majority of the books we had and the subjects that people talked about in my house growing up were the paranormal esoteric type subjects. And I guess I just caught the bug from my uh, my mother's side of the family, and I was my, I was hooked from the age of ten. I, I remember being at, you know a, a junior school at the age of ten, and going repeatedly to the shelves to get the same books, and it was free books. One was on ghosts, one was on UFOs, and one was on mysterious creatures. And I would I would you know repeat the books and then go back through them and repeat them again and keep reading them. I think a lot of listeners will share that same same sort of memory and same experience growing up as well. What was the earliest time you remember either remote viewing or a related ability or experience really catching your attention, being that kind of wow moment? Was it a family member or, or was it yourself? Oh, um, it was probably some experiences that we had growing up in the house I lived in before I lived in this one now, and I've lived here for 40 odd years now it was my parents house but the first house we lived in i think i lived there to the age of seven uh i i vaguely remember that we had some very strong paranormal experiences and disturbances in the house so it was very very much like poltergeist type stuff so we the family would all be downstairs and we would hear someone up above us running in the rooms upstairs but there would obviously be be no one there so I think that started, yeah, I remember that kind of stuff happening, and that must be from around about the age of five, six, and seven, I would say. And again, as a child, I'm going to ask, I've spoken to experiencers and other remote viewers. At times you hear about traumatic events at childhood or, or injuries that spurned these things on. Is this something that has been, that, that came on, or was it very much a, a natural ability and something you, you harnessed? Yeah, I don't think I have any trauma in in, in that sparked this. I, I yeah, I think mine is you know uh, it comes from the family line. I would say I know my mother was psychic as uh, and you know she she was psychical and trained people and did all kinds of divination till till she pretty much passed. 
I think I recollect hearing stories of my my grandmother down the line having some kind of basic skills as well. So for me, yeah, it's just a it's just a trait that's in the family line. Uh, and you know, I got a brother and sister, but I'm pretty much the only one that is uh, that followed this line. Even though I know they have some, you know, some basic ability themselves. And you mentioned it started off with tea leaves and various different types of reading yeah. mediumship. At what point did you really move over? You've mentioned obviously remote viewing. You saw someone yeah. and that sparked an interest. How did you begin to hone that yourself and really focus on growing those skills? Absolutely. Well, as I said, I first heard about remote viewing in 92. Uh, and then I started to look into it a bit more. But you have to bear in mind that that was in the early days of the internet. So we were all using 56K modems at 4K a second back then. Yeah, And there wasn't a lot of information out because the project in in its majority was still secret at that point until 1995. Um, so I, I managed to get a few bits and pieces online uh, to point me in the right direction, but it didn't really take off for me and everyone else until it exploded in 1995 when yeah, Nightline did a program on, on remote viewing and, and recognized it and said, you know, this is what the CIA had been spending money on. And then after that, yeah, it kind of grew online into separate little communities that I joined and it kind of exploded from me from there, really. And what I found was when I was tr- training in the classical techniques, so, you know, clairvoyance and all that kind of stuff, it's very archaic, very spontaneous. The process controls you uh, and it controls the direction when you get the information, how you get it. The genius thing about remote viewing and the method that I use, which is called controlled remote viewing, is that I choose the situation. So like if I wanted to right now, I could say, okay, I'm going to do remote viewing right now. I could sit here with a stack of paper or, and a pen, or I, I more often use a tablet nowadays and just do it. And I'm in control. I decide how much information I want to get when I want to stop and everything. So it's a control thing, really. Classical ways I find too spontaneous. The, the structured remote viewing that came out of the CIA and the military, I find way more structured for me. Now, I've mentioned on the podcast a few times, in terms of remote viewing, one of my early experiences as such was, was seeing the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, <laughs> which is largely fictional. It's a Hollywood film, big budget, fit, pretty funny. I, I, I enjoy it. However, there is a warning at the start of the film which tells you more of this is true than you would believe. Now, it, remo- it does portray remote viewers as eccentric telepaths, each with almost superpowers, different techniques. Is that the case in any way? And what does an actual remote viewing session look like? Um, yeah, I mean, that was a parody. Um, but there is a lot of reality in there. Uh, they mixed a lot of the names up and the characters up, but they do resemble real people within the remote viewing community. And in the early days of remote viewing, they, you know, there were several different projects uh, ongoing in several different uh, military departments that looked at different things. So, you know, there there is some good evidence that they did try to stop the heart of a goat and that kind of thing. But that wasn't part of the, you know, I would say the main effort that, that mm. happened, uh, SRI and and the other labs. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's it's semi-true, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining. Um, yeah. 
And an actual remote viewing session you mentioned it would be paper and pencil, whereas you use a tablet, which is yes. a lovely take a modern take on the remote viewing sessions you would see within the kind of films and TV or even documentaries. So yes. for you, could you just go into a little bit more detail on if you're going to sit down and and remote view a target, what that looks like, the process, and obviously bringing in the tablet and everything as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what would happen is uh we always work blind. So it means, you know, as a remote viewer, I know nothing about anything specific about target whatsoever. So I would get an email from a project manager uh, and I only use trusted project managers uh, because, you know, this is, this is a possible tool that could be corrupted. Um, so I'll get an email from a project manager w- would say, okay, your target number is, and then it would be a random number. And the number doesn't really, really mean, mean anything. I don't need it in reality. But what it does is it gives us something, it gives us a title for admin purposes. So that if we have to talk or talk by email, we can refer to it by a project name. So they'll make up a random number and they'll sign it to a target. And the t- number I may get might be something like 7829-9920. And they'll say to me, uh, you know, you've got a week to do this, get your data back to me by end of, you know, 29th of April. Uh, and that's it. So they'll give me that as a target. Then I will then sit down. Uh, in the past, I used to sit down, sit down with a stack of paper and a pen, but now I just use a tablet. Uh, and what I do is um, I run through a specific six-stage process. And this six-stage process came out of Stanford Research Institute and the, the, uh, the American military, and it's called CRV or Controlled Remote Viewing. And essentially what I do in that six-stage process, it, it starts off very with a very small aperture to the target. And each stage you go to, stage two, three, four, five, and six, is almost like seeing this, this camera aperture to the target open wider and wider and wider with the data that flows, flows in. And it's very technical. It's very structured in the way you put your information down. Um, and that's essentially what I do. Uh, so I'll sit there for an hour uh, working away on my tablet, probably doing something like, 10 to 30 a4 pages of information uh which i then once i finish i will the good thing about having doing it on a tablet is the moment i finished it it saves as a pdf so i can email it straight to the client whereas in the past uh myself and other remote viewers that are still using technique of paper you have to scan all the paper in then you have to make it in pdf it's it's a lot longer doing it that old way which is why i moved to tablets i do so much remote viewing now for clients that i have to It'd be more efficient and, and a tablet's great for that nowadays how detailed can you be with a result and, and i've spoken to remote viewers and i've obviously in, in looking online and basic research some will say they can be pretty accurate in terms of detail they could read from paper others would say it's more of a sketch and an outline where for example i, I know you've been involved as well in remote viewing what the 9-11 attacks ultimately were and you'll see people, they won't draw the Twin Towers and the Fireball, but there'll be something that resembles that scene. Yeah. And it's not always that 100%. How do, you, how do you distinguish that accuracy? Or is it something that just comes and goes depending on the event you're trying to view? Yeah, the accuracy does change target to target. And it also depends on who's tasking the target. Because we know there is a... Um, there seems to be some kind of connection at some level between the person that's created the target and the remote viewer. You know, it might be all, almost like what they call the experimenter effect. Um, but yeah, I'm myself, because I've been doing this consistently now using the same technique for 25 years, uh, and I had a natural talent in the first place, 
uh, I'm just lucky enough to be able to get very accurate data for targets. And for example, you know, I mean, there's no, there's nothing I, I or any other remote viewer can't do. If the target's a life or a person, I can go inside their head, get their faults, past, present, or future. Um, you know, if the target's a location, I can go, I can go anywhere at a target. There doesn't seem to be any limitations to remote viewing uh, that we know of. And can anyone begin to remote view? 25 years honing those skills is a very long time. But yeah. like you say, you have that natural intuition beforehand anyway. What about someone who's who's picking up this podcast, who's listened for a few months, obviously has an interest in UFOs, maybe quite new to the subject, hears about remote viewing for the first time, and there'll be those people who are right now. How could they go about themselves starting the remote viewing process and beginning to learn about it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's my belief that everyone can do this, um, but we will be able to do it to differing levels of of skill level. You know, like we can all run, but I'm never going to be able to run 100 meters really fast. It's just not within me to do that. Um, So we can all do it. Uh, I have resources on my website that people could do. You know, I have essentially a training video and a template that they could watch and go through. And they can essentially teach themselves to do a remote viewing session in something like 30 minutes. Um, so it's very easy to do. It only gets more complicated and more time uh, constraining when you learn a methodology like I have and you take it a lot more serious. But, you know, the normal person out there could use very basic remote viewing skills to make very basic decisions for themselves. You know, things like finding your car keys or finding a car park space or even just making a, a, a decision, you know, because essentially all it is is uh, intuition instinct and you know I, you know even gut instinct ceos um, make you know they do really well in business uh, by making gut instinct in, uh, decisions and that's all remote viewing is other than the remote viewing we do uh, it's called Asti's remote viewing because we do it within what we call the scientific protocol and and that, that differentiates it from all other uh, psychic experiments and the protocol means it's never spontaneous it's always a planned project it's always done blind, so the remote viewer does not know the target, and they don't have anyone in their vicinity or in communication with them when they're doing the remote viewing who knows what the target is as well. Uh, the data is always recorded, so you can check it later. Uh, and then you have a level of feedback at the end of the target, which then allows you to take it side by side with the remote viewing data and check it and give it a score for your accuracy. So that's that, you know, it, those rules or protocols we call them are. are what makes remote viewing remote viewing rather than any other psychic discipline. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts. I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. 
So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one, that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. I'm going to skip ahead slightly and we'll bring forward one of the listener questions. It's a very good place to ask it, I think, from from Paul Eyre. And he wants to know, what is your own personal best remote viewing event or experience? By this, I mean what immediately springs to mind as a time where your remote viewing skills brought a definite and positive positive result. Oh, there's so many. Um, uh, Because, yeah, um, that's a hard one because there there literally is so many. the positive benefits are, are for me all the time. Uh, for example, the last four years, myself and four other remote viewers have been working in a project called Crypto Viewing. And uh, we have subscribers there who pay us for information. And what we do is we provide intuitive information on cryptocurrencies, markets, news predictions, and we do the occasional mysteries target in there as well for them. Um, but by using that data, uh, not on, on its own, but with other data as well, uh, that information I, I provided myself through looking at cryptocurrency markets, I've made my personal investment, which was terrible. I had no money uh, two years ago. But in the two years that I've been investing my very small amount of available money that I can, based on my uh, crypto uh, remote viewing, I've increased my personal investment by 600%. And, you know, you can't get that from a bank or any, in in any other, other way. So that's, that's, that's a personal benefit for me. Um, but you know, I do have per, I do have remote viewing sessions which were absolutely amazing as well, which blew me away. But I couldn't pick a single one. They're all good, you know. Area fifty one, Roswell. Well, I was I was going to ask, but giving it's uh, you know, that UFO podcast, there's going to be listeners thinking, <laughs> let's hear some UFO related stuff. Could you could you give us one of those uh, area fifty one and Roswell jump out as being massive names? Yeah. What sort of things have you remote viewed? Why did you remote view those? And and what's your takeaways? Yeah, uh, all, all the targets I do are always blind. So, you know, I don't know what the target is when it's given to me. Um, and being a person interested in UFOs, some of those targets like Roswell, um, I've been waiting years for someone to blindly task me with that target. And it was only something like four years ago uh, that Courtney Brang from the Farsight Institute, uh, he was the very first person that tasked me on on looking at Roswell. Uh, and I worked project my, uh, with another um co-worker of mine on various projects called dick Agar. we worked it for the farsight institute and we got some amazing data uh which, which you know absolutely corresponds with you know some of the famous testimonies out there some of the jesse marcel stuff all the other all the other ones you know the corso uh, testimony and what he said he did and saw all that kind of stuff so we had really good data and it is available online it's on my you know i put it on online for free with as well they can actually look at the uh paper because what i did in on some of these projects i start off on paper or on tablet do several hundred pages of information and then the project manager will say to me at some point okay you finished that now now let's get something on video do do it live on whiteboard and then i move to whiteboard and i do my remote viewing live in front of a video camera Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the, that's the case with the Roswell and the other UFO ones that I have on my website for people to watch. And they can download uh, and view the paper sessions in full as well. And I'll get the links to those in the description. With Roswell, for example, are you are you RVing the crash, the scene? Is it is it glimpses? Is it more like a video that you see when you're actually remote viewing? 
uh, it was the it was uh, if I remember correctly, I think it, the target was Crash at Corona in 1947, uh, and it had a few details there. But yeah, it was the essentially the crash event, you know. And at one point in the RV, I do uh, I do sketch how and why the craft came down and embedded in the land, and then you know the aftermath of it. So with remote viewing, I can I can move my you know because because I'm in control, I move myself around the target. So after say twenty sheets of paper, I kind of know that it, that it was an aerial object that came down and crashed. You know, I kind of built up that impression by that stage. So then I, I'm a bit like a de- psychic detective. I move myself around so that I would, if I knew it was a structure that crashed, I would then give myself a movement command, something like now move inside the structure and describe. So I would move inside it and I would describe how you know what went wrong, the makeup of it, the environment. And, and so on. And yeah, so, you know, by doing these movement commands, and I probably did five or six on that one, moving myself inside, moving myself inside the life forms to describe the life forms and so on. Uh, by doing that, you build, build up a really big general p- picture of the targets. You mentioned that you'd waited a long time for someone to, to give you that target. That was when yeah. you were looking forward to remote viewing. Why can't you set yourself that target in remote viewing as something, you know, if it's a Saturday evening, you've got some time and you, you, you've got a good headspace and you think, I really want to get inside an event like Roswell. Yeah. Is it something you can do? Is it a way to do it? Or is it just it works better with that with that gift of the target? Some people do try to do it in the, in the way that they set themselves uh, their own personal target pools. So what they'll do, they'll write down the... Uh, the target on a on a sheet of paper and they'll seed it inside an envelope, write a random number on the front. And then they'll they'll do that and they'll you know they'll do that 50, 100 times. So they'll have a box of 50 or 100 targets. Uh which you know but I won't do that. I'm a bit more aggressive. I won't take that approach and do my own because I still believe that even if you have a box of 250 envelopes of targets that you've set yourself, it's some level Somewhere in your head, you know what targets you've set, and you know what's in that box there somewhere. So I won't work that way. I I I want to be. A, I'm a bit more of a purist on this. You're um, almost giving yourself a bias that you you want that to be a target, or like you say, you know it's there, so you've got an inkling, and would yes, that not yes. necessarily give you that kind of clear mind? Absolutely. And, uh, and you know uh, why you can't set the target yourself? For and I, I can use an example. Let's say, for example, the target would be the Eiffel Tower. Um, we all know what the Eiffel Tower looks like. We all know it's in Paris. We all know it's a tourist attraction. We all know it's made out of metal and it's like a tower that moves upwards, you know, in a concave motion. Um, so how do you score that information? What information could you provide about the Eiffel Tower that you could score that you didn't already know? That's why we have to work blind. I suppose, though, I'm... Let me come back on that one as someone who, again, like people ask me what uh, regularly, what event would you love to witness? And I suppose I do say Roswell. Now, I've got in my head from various TV shows, movies, books, you know, that scene being played out in different ways. As a remote viewer, though, would you say you could remote view an event that you, you've you never seen, the, the genuine event? Or again, would that bias potentially be there because you already have seen the movies, the TV shows and you've built up a picture beforehand? It's a good question. I think that uh, undoubtedly we can uh, remote view things that we've never seen or experienced before. I do think, though, that it's also possible for remote viewers to 
remote view belief systems or myths that have built up about certain things as well because you know um, the the myth over uh, i don't i'd say the myth but you know the stories and the mythology about a big target like roswell you know we have was it 70 years worth of mythology and theories and counter mm-hmm. theories and that that exists at some level of human consciousness um so i do believe that it's very it's just as easy for a remote viewer to pick up on the actual real target uh, as much as it is we can also pick up on uh, a fallacy about that target or yeah, or something that's not actually real about that target. Um, so the only way to determine if the remote viewer is accurate or not is having enough feedback information to then assess what the remote viewer says for, for accuracy. I can understand that. You mentioned people and organizations have approached you in the past to do work for them. How does that process go? You know, where do they find a remote viewer as such? Um, Can you speak on some of the organizations and types of work you've done as well? Yeah, yeah. I've done done huge amounts of projects over the years. Uh, I did 250 plus missing persons cases for a group called Find Me in, in America. And that was essentially for pretty much i would say at one point or another pretty much every police uh just you know state police force in, in america at some level and this was generally on code cases you know they have nowhere else to go so they go to a a, a group of psychics that are run by an ex-dea agent so you know you have that law enforcement connection there anyway uh and we worked yeah as i said i worked 250 missing persons cases uh over a period of five years for them what sort uh, for, of success? I, I hate interrupting, but what sort of success rate did you have with that working on those two hundred and fifty cases? I did have the stats on that. Um, I, it's not a huge amount because you know there are just a, a vast amount of people around the globe that just disappear and they're never seen again. But if I remember correctly, I think I, I believe the latest stats that were given to me by the Find Me group was something like three three percent in finding uh, people. I think even one person, that's one person that might not have been found without that. So that's that's still pretty incredible. We're not saying it's an ideal situation. Um, Police and and families have nowhere else to go, so why not? And we we do have, and I I have many records from police chiefs uh, and some of these organizations, you know, saying, okay, thank you, you did help us find this person. In most cases, when we do find people and they've been missing for a while, we have to be honest, they're, you know, they're more often than not deceased in, in, in somewhere or another. Um, but we do have, you know, and I have personal letters from, you know, police chiefs saying, you know, we found this person's body and, you know, so it gave closure to the family. We only did so because of you guys as a, as a team providing. Uh, and what we do is we provide GPS coordinates. So, you know, we work blind. The police say, you know, here's your number. And we do our thing. We provide a GPS coordinate. They go there, and if the person's there or not, then you know it's good and bad. On your own YouTube channel, you interviewed Nick Cook, and uh, you had mentioned on that interview that you were hired by Tom DeLong and To the Stars Academy for a project. I'd, yeah. I'd like to ask you about that. Is it ongoing? What did it involve? Yes, uh, I spoke to them for a while, and it was a project where. Um, because I wanted to be involved, I stepped back from project managing it and hired a project manager as the go-between between myself and them. Uh, and it, myself and a team of, I think, something like 10 or 12 remote viewers worked on the project for Tom DeLonge. Um, and it was a UAP-related project. 
uh, a future, I'll, I could probably say it's a future-related UAP project. Bearing in mind, we did it probably two years ago now as well. Um, and altogether, you know, uh, I was slightly informed on that one, not so blind in the fact that I knew who the client was. Because, mm. um, you know, he contacted me first. Um, but myself and all the other data that I've seen from the other remote viewers, because I have a full report on it, it all overlaps and corresponds and, you know, highlights each other as well. So very good, consistent data. And it's, it's data consistent with typical UAP craft and the occupants that are uh, driving, flying. Uh, I And uh, this is where it gets complicated in this project, uh, in this subject for me, because they're not so much driving the craft, they're symbiotically connected to the craft. Um, yeah, so we detailed all that kind of stuff. And uh, you, uh, my sketches alone, you know, I could I could uh, probably offline and stuff show you my sketches. You know, I detail the, the occupants, their uh, brain structure, you know, the structure of their hands, their bone structure, how they integrate with this craft, how the craft, you know, the layers of the craft, how the craft drives, works, or, you know, we can get pretty much anything anything we need for the client. And, and were you given a reason that you can divulge that they wanted you to do this? No, I, you know, I didn't, I got the barest minimum of, of, of information. Yeah. And is that something that was a work that was done and complete and you've moved yeah. on? Yep. <laughs> yeah. We, it was a, it was a month long or so project. We, uh, as I said, 10 remote viewers or more, 10 or 11 remote viewers worked it and a project manager. It was all paid, paid work. So every, everyone was paid for their participation. We gave a report. Uh, I know the report went to Tom and Tom shared it with the other guys involved at the time, how put off and all the others. Um, and that's it. I do occasionally speak to Tom. Uh, I occasionally share my other UFO research remote viewing projects with him as well. And he, you know, he likes to comment on those. Uh, so we do have a small ongoing dialogue, but yes, but no other projects since. It's nice to hear that someone does still speak to Tom on the UFO subject because he doesn't speak to many people on it, does he? Um, that seems to have gone awfully quiet as of the last couple of years. Um, talking about your prediction work before, I'd like to touch back on that. What have been some of the successes outside of the missing person stuff um, that you've had worked with that? I think you said 65%, which is... A yeah. phenomenal hit rate on on anything, which is a kind of blind, uh, and yeah. I suppose it's well above your fifty fifty, and would be a lucky guess, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, I'm happy with the predictive stuff that I do. Uh, yeah, it, and it is around about sixty five percent. And what I can do is I can give you a link uh, to all uh, all my correct predictive uh, news uh, hits for the year two thousand and twenty. So I put I put them all online on my website, so someone can see all the ones that I actually got correct on there. And there's probably about, it's probably about 60 to a hundred all within the one page. Um, Any particular highlights for you? Oh, there's just, uh, there's just so many. I mean, one really good highlight is one that I posted on Facebook and Twitter and everything today that I had. Um, Cause what we do in crypto viewing is myself and the other uh, freed for remote viewers. We, every month we always look a month ahead to see what the top news is going to be. So in March, we all did our, our re remote viewing sessions and recorded it on camera where we looked at what the top news for April would be. And one of my, uh, you know, I usually do around about 10 predictions, you know, so I do things like uh, what Bitcoin's going to do, what the market's going to do, top news in the US, top news in the UK, that this kind of thing. 
And one of my predictions was that there was going to be an incident with a big warship uh, and there was going to be an impact from the warship and it was going to be all messy and there's going to be an underwater element, all this kind of stuff. I drew this big gray warship. Of course, we had the uh, sinking of the uh, the flagship uh, warship from, from, from Russia a few days mm-hmm. back. So yeah, that's a big hit. And in four years of doing this, I don't think I've ever, you know, because I have to track the news to see how accurate we are. I don't think I've ever seen anything. In fact, I've been told the other day that uh, there hasn't been a sinking of a warship of this size since since World War Two. So, you know, it's not like it's an everyday occurrence for, for a warship to be in the news and it being sunk. Absolutely. Uh, and I want to ask, um, is there any issue of sensitivity as part of predicting events because are you potentially going to see for example a warship being sunk results in a loss of life however that's still relatively speaking a a vague prediction because you're not naming people or you know locations that other people could potentially see and think oh god that's me you know again to use a crude example 9-11 to remote view that in advance which people have claimed to have done that's that's quite an upsetting thing for people to hear. So how do you go about that sensitive part of the, the prediction? Yeah, as a business, as the crypto viewing business, we censor a lot of the material we put out. We do a lot more remote viewing uh, internally than, than we actually release to, even to our paid members at times. Uh, for example, in 2019, uh, right into the early parts of 2020, we were doing lots of remote viewing projects when we were looking ahead at future events in the U S and it was big events like the Macy day parade and stuff. Uh, and we'd be getting these targets and none of us as remote viewers would be recording any information about people, any, anything on the streets or anything. We couldn't understand in 2019, we couldn't understand why in 2020 we were getting no, nothing happening for the Macy day parade and stuff. Now that intrigued us, and we we thought something very big, you know, was going to happen. We didn't know what, but we knew something very big was going to happen because the Macy Day Parade and others weren't on. But we couldn't release that information to the public because we didn't know how to classify it on. And you know, we're very aware at the same time of um, not being uh, people that sell predictions of doom, you know, just to worry people to make money yeah. off it and stuff like that. So we are very particular on what on on what we put out. We do. And at times we do censor quite a bit of what we put out as well. And just for anyone who forgets, uh, twenty twenty COVID kicked off. Hence, there yes. was no one in the streets there and everything no was grounded. Yes. Yeah. But at the time we didn't get that. But yeah, uh, you know, and because we didn't get it and we didn't know what was going to happen, we knew something big was going to happen, but we didn't know what exactly. We just didn't know what to do with the information, so we kept it all internal. No, that, that's fair. Um, I want to ask, uh, this is one that Dan was talking to me about as well. Have you ever used training like the Monroe Hemisync gateway experience to aid in your remote viewing or enhance those skills? Yeah, I used it for a while in my early days of training um, and it works uh, very well. And a lot of the remote viewers that I work with and I hire on occasion uh, and even practice with and, st- and stuff, they, uh, they still use those techniques themselves. I'm at a stage now where I do like to listen to music when I remote view, which is weird. Uh, but I tend to just stick any kind of classical music on. I use soundtracks, so I like the Interstellar soundtrack. And I like soundtracks because they have no singing in it, so there's no words, So, which I find is good because then it doesn't you know, make make imagery form in my mind of from, from the words. 
but other remote viewers, yes, they definitely uh, live and die by different hemi sinks to get them in the right state of mind. Personally, after 25 years of doing this now, I, you know, if I, well, I, I literally just sit down like I would here at this desk now and just, I would just like, I can internally relax myself in five seconds to get myself into the zone because 25 years of doing something, you just learn to do that. Yeah, I can appreciate the the no words thing in the music. I've got a very active imagination in mind, yeah. and yeah. I struggle to to even you know trying you know human initiated contact C five whatever it might be. I've always said on the podcast one day I'll try it properly, and and Dan's always telling me to, but I struggle to go outside and clear my head and look up and concentrate for that long. So, yeah. what what kind of advice do you give to someone like me who's who's trying to do that and clear their head? I would give any everyone the advice just for better health uh and for anything to do with remote viewing and psychic work uh any form of basic meditation it's it's key i would yeah i would see key to my development uh i did a lot of meditation for many years before i got into the remote viewing side of things uh and the experiences i had for doing normal meditation and the the realms you see, the life forms you see, and just getting to know yourself uh, in your body and feeling it relaxed and stuff. It's just so beneficial on so many levels. And it's so easy to do, you know, your videos, apps, courses, all over the place between this now. So there's there's no real excuse for you to take, you know, to not take 10 minutes out to, to meditate. And, you know, it doesn't have to be an hour long meditation. You literally can do it for 10, 15 minutes at a time and it'd be hugely beneficial for you. Do you feel there's any link between remote viewing as a practice and things like astral projection, or you hear people talking about downloads and receiving downloads from entities? Yeah, I think it's all it's all uh, how I class what we do with remote viewing and everything else I did in the past with the you know with the clairvoyance and channeling and mediumship. Uh, I see it like a you know it's not there's no uh, delineation between all this. It's just like a huge spectrum of frequencies if you can imagine it that way, or a huge spectrum of colors. And, you know, where you just progress or move between the, these frequencies or colors. Yeah, uh, that's the easiest way I can I can say it, really. Some have spoken about encountering other entities whilst they remote view, uh, especially when they're remote viewing space and putting themselves out there. Have you ever encountered anything like that? You mentioned the Roswell remote viewing and yeah. you, you moved yourself into the bodies of other life forms. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Meditative game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine.
imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. out the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I called out to my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems and they think I should seek therapy and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me. Consider your space, consider your life, consider your life.